to these eternal realities that we're going to think about this evening? Are they impacting our life and our witness in this world? So let me pray for us with those words in mind. Father in heaven, we thank you for the precious truths of the gospel. Thank you for that lovely summary of the saving message of Jesus that we find in John 3 verse 16. Thank you for your amazing divine love. A love so deep, a love so extensive that it caused your father's heart to give your only son into this world for our sake. That those who believe in him shall not perish in hell but shall receive everlasting life in heaven. Father, how we thank you as well for those that you've put around us in our lives, for praying parents, for family members, for friends, for those who've shared Christ with us. Thank you for their persistence. Thank you for their bravery. Thank you for their patience with us. And Father, as we work our way through these next three evenings together, how we pray that by your spirit you would be at work in our hearts. You would awaken a new desire to be a people who speak of Christ in this world. That we would be those people to others. So bless our time together we pray. And as we engage with these things, equip us for works of service in this world. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well over the next three weeks we're going to... Look at these three M's that you'll see there on the screen, uh, words that I hope and pray will help us, encourage us as we think about our own evangelistic zeal. We're going to think this evening about our motive. What is it that motivates us to speak of Christ? Next week, we're going to think about the means. How does God actually draw people to himself? How does he move people from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. And then in the final week, we're going to home in on the, on the message, the glorious gospel that God has given to us, not to keep to ourselves, but to share with this world. Our motive, the means, and the message. But I'd love to begin with a question for you this evening to discuss just for a couple of minutes on your tables. And the question is this, what holds you back in your evangelism? Now, there's an assumption in that question that there's something for us all that holds us back. We'd love to be to be freer. We'd love to be more open with the gospel that we know and love in our hearts. So two minutes on your tables. What is it that holds you back in your evangelism? Discuss. Two minutes. Uh, maybe whole conversations there. No doubt we could speak for longer. Uh, on these things. If I can ask Lids to come to the front, Lids is our scribe this evening. So it'd be lovely just to hear maybe something from each group. What, what, what is that something that stood out in your group? Something that holds you back in your evangelism? Confidence. Pop that up there, Lids. Confidence. Confidence in, in knowing the gospel, Pam? Yeah. Just a sense of vulnerability. Yeah, thank you. Good, keep them coming. Fear of saying the wrong thing. Yeah, you, you want you want to be good to the gospel. Now, am I going to say the right thing? Am I going to say a helpful thing? Yeah, fear. Fear of what people think of you. Imagine that's a significant one for us all. Fear of what people think could be good as well at their lids. Yeah, what what will people think if I talk to them about Jesus? What will, will that change their view of me? 
something of pride probably in there as well, isn't there? Because I'm thinking about me actually rather than the person who needs the gospel. Rejection. Yeah, questions that might be asked back. Am I, am I ready to handle those questions? Yeah. Which we never will know all the answers, but that, that, that's, that's fears with us, isn't it? The fear of rejection. Again, especially if you're witnessing to family members and close friends, I think you, you feel that fear of rejection even more because there's a nearness because of that relationship. Will, will I repel the person? It's actually practicality. Sometimes you're in conversations, and I know this with my folks who I've been praying for for 19 years, and sometimes it just feels like nothing, no opportunities come up. And how do you, how do you bring that into conversation? How do you change that gear shift from normal stuff, if you like, to the, the eternal realities that we're thinking about? Last couple, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. And that we'll be thinking about a lot this evening. If, yeah. Yeah. If our heart's not in the right place, if we're not walking well with the Lord, if our love is not, is not, doesn't feel authentic for, for, for Him and for others, then it, it won't begin to spill out into life. Certainly. And last one then, maybe. Yeah, British Reserve culture. Yeah, exactly. We, do, we don't want to move into anybody's personal space. We just, we just, the polite thing to do is to hold back sometimes and, and keep these things to ourselves. Thanks, Lids. That's really helpful. And I imagine as you, you look at some of those things up there on the board, that's brilliant. We're good, Lids. Your, your job is done for now. Um, but I imagine that we, we relate to a lot, if not all of those things, um, that are on there on the board. And I think part of my hope for these three sessions as we work them through in the evening is that these things that do hold us back would hold us back less. As we dwell upon the gospel, as God grips our hearts, as our, as our love for the Lord becomes deeper and our love for those around us become deeper, that we would be freer and more open. The pride would be less and I worry less about what people think because the urgency of the gospel and what it means for other people will begin to take over um, in our hearts. Why don't you turn, if you would, to, to Acts chapter 4 with me. It's going to come up on the screen as well. Some bits will be on the screen, some bits you'll need to look up in your Bibles, uh, but good to have your your Bible to hand. Context for these words, Peter and John have, have just, well, God has just healed a lame beggar at the beautiful gate on the way into Jerusalem. He's used Peter uh, and John. The crowds have gathered. It's not long after Pentecost. And as always, Peter uses that opportunity of a gathered crowd to preach the gospel. And he speaks of the, of the risen Jesus. But as he does, the authorities don't like it and they get dragged away to stand before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. And in no uncertain terms, they get told to shut up, stop speaking about Jesus. And so we read in verse 18, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. What a lovely place that would be to come to, wouldn't it, in our evangelism? I cannot help but speak about what I've seen and heard. The good news of the gospel is so good. What I've seen of Christ in the scriptures, what I've heard about Jesus from God's word, it is so good that I cannot help but share it. I can't help it. It just comes out. You can't actually stop me. 
because it flows out of a heart that has so been gripped by the gospel. And we see this again and again as we as we work through the gospel accounts that that somebody meets Jesus and Jesus does something in their life. He meets a very immediate need and they go away changed and they can't help speak. He doesn't need to tell them. They They just go and they speak of the one who has transformed their life. You see, we don't need to go through an eight week evangelism training course to be ready. We don't need to be able to. Speak about the Trinity in three simple sentences. We don't need to have a head full of biblical data and to be ready with every apologetic argument to to come back to a culture that's seemingly moving away from Christ. As helpful as some of these things might be, we just need a heart that loves Jesus. A heart that has been transformed by the gospel and is willing to speak up for the sake of our saviour. A lovely little definition that I've read in one book, evangelism is the spontaneous, irrepressible urge to tell other people about the Jesus you have met who has transformed your life. What a beautiful definition that is, isn't it? Spontaneous, just spills out. It just comes out. Can't help it. Irrepressible, I can't keep it in. I cannot put a lid on it. It's too good. It's got to come out. And of course, the urge speaks of an inward desire, doesn't it? Not an outward pressure. It's not about somebody stood at the front of church and saying, you must tell people about Jesus. Now, of course, there's a lovely obedience to the call of the gospel on our lives. But but our hope and our prayer is that as we think about these things together, God would awaken a desire or continue to grow a desire within our hearts that we would want to speak about Christ, a spontaneous, irrepressible urge. And so this evening, we're going to focus in on three key motivations, three things that I pray will will awaken that desire and compel us to be a people who stand up and speak for Jesus. Rico Tice, in, in his book, Honest Evangelism, which some of you have maybe read, I think the, the, the Connect group maybe read this today, Les, I'm not sure, totally recommend to you. Rico Tice speaks about these three motivations that we're going to focus in on this evening with, with three Gs, three words beginning with G. He speaks about the glory of Jesus Christ being our primary motive for evangelism. He speaks about the guarantee The wonder of the new creation, the world that awaits those that have put their trust in Jesus. And he speaks about the grim reality of hell. So turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 17 in your Bibles. You'll need to go there. This one's not on the screen. As we think about the glory of Jesus, which I'll commend to you as our supreme incentive for evangelism. Acts chapter 17, verse 16 to 18. I don't know if someone would like to read that to us. Someone just pop their hand up if you're happy to read that to us. We've got a little roving mic. It'd be lovely to someone else to read. As I pick on Val's just there. Thanks, Val. And as, as you do, as, as you read these words, three questions for you on the screen. Look, very simple questions. What did Paul see? How did Paul feel? What did Paul do? So let's look at these words and listen together. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? 
Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. What did Paul see then? Verse 16, no trick questions. What did he see? Yeah. He saw a city full of idols. As Paul walked in through the gates of Athens, what struck him firstly wasn't the, the beauty and the brilliance of the architecture or the sophistication of that particular society. What struck him firstly was the idolatry of the people. Wherever Paul looked, he saw people that were giving their time and their energy and their devotion to things that can never save or satisfy. It's no different today, is it? In our context, in Long Crendon, Chinna, Haddenham, wherever we come from. All around us, in our particular context, we see people who are giving themselves. They are devoting their lives to things that can never save or satisfy. The idols, of course, may be different. See some up there on the screen and family and money and success and, and comfort and power and approval. And the, the idols of our day may be slightly different to the idols that Paul saw as he walked into Athens. But the attitude of the heart is no different. It reveals a heart that is devoting itself to things that are not God. Something else that can never save or satisfy. And the Bible calls that idolatry. And Paul saw it everywhere he looked. That's what he saw. But how did Paul feel? Secondly. What's the words it uses there in verse 16? Yeah. Greatly distressed. Didn't just walk into Athens and chat to a few people and say, Cool, it's a real shame there's not more Christians here. Oh, he was cut to the very core of his being. His heart was filled with pain. He was greatly distressed. Why? Because other things other than Jesus were getting the glory. The people were giving the glory to other things other than Jesus. And that cut Paul. It cut him to the very core of his being. And so I wonder again, as we look around our village, our context, our workplace... And as we see so many people around us who seem so oblivious of the gospel, so comfortable without Christ, how does that make you feel? Is that just okay? Or does it do something in your heart that go, that causes great distress? Because you long for the name of Jesus to be glorified. As John Stott says in his commentary in these verses, the inward pain and horror that moved Paul to share the good news with idolaters in Athens should similarly move us. And so I guess the question is, does it? Does the idolatry around us, does the fact that other things are receiving the glory that is due to Jesus, does that grieve us? And does it move us to proclaim the gospel into their lives? What did Paul see? A city swamped with idols. How did Paul feel? Great distress within the heart. So what did Paul do? Verse 17, verse 18. Pick out some of the words. What did he do? Yeah. He reasoned, he engaged with these people. He didn't disengage, he reasoned. He went, he engaged with these people. 
Verse 18, he preached the gospel to them. Where did he do this? In the synagogues and in the streets, yeah? In the religious establishments and in the marketplace. Paul went everywhere, moved by this inward desire to see the name of the Lord Jesus lifted up and glorified. And you see, we could write down, I'm sure, a whole list of of real motives, real incentives to share the gospel with others. But I would suggest to you, I would commend to you actually, that the greatest incentive in our hearts should be the glory of Jesus. He made us for his glory. He saved us for his glory. And he wants us to be a people who witness to his glory. John Stott says again, probably better than most, if only our eyes We're open to his glory. And if only we felt wounded by the shame of his public humiliation, we should not be able to remain silent. Rather, we would echo the apostles' words in Acts 4.20. We cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. Let me give you a moment to reflect as you read those words there on the screen. As maybe as you ask yourself the question, what is the greatest motivation in your heart right now? Is it the glory and the honor and the worth of our most wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ? Take a moment to think, and the band are going to come up, and we're going to sing in response to this first motivation before we come back together. Just take a moment to ask yourself that question. Good, do take a seat. All glory be to Christ, our supreme Motivation in evangelism is the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And our second motivation you see up there on the screen is the guarantee of the new creation. Now, as you came in, you should have received the playing card, and most of you are probably thinking, what are these for? Um, here's what these are for. You might think this is a bit awkward, but I'm going to do it anyway. If you've got a red playing card, you need to move to this end of the hall and stand as a little group here. If you've got a black playing card... You need to move to this end of the hall and stand as a little group here. Red's that end, black's this end. Looks like a bit of a standoff. See, here's the reality is we're separated here into two groups. The Lord Jesus came into this world and died for sin. He died for sinners like us to deal with our sin. He rose again to new life. He's defeated the final enemy of death. He's ascended into glory. Right now he sits at the Father's right hand in that supreme seat of authority. And one day that God has already designed in the future, tomorrow, next year, we don't know. Jesus Christ will return from glory to judge the living and the dead. And when he does, he will divide humanity into two groups. It's what the Gospels teach us. Jesus will divide humanity into two groups, the sheep and the goats. Good fish, bad fish. Wheat and tares. Those who've put their trust in Christ and those who've rejected him as their saviour. One group will go to spend eternity under the marvelous blessing of the Lord Jesus the other group the Bible teaches will go to experience the grim reality of hell as Spurgeon once famously said there's only two dates that matter today, this day what are you doing with Jesus this day 
and that day when Jesus Christ returns. You see, all this is is a little visual aid for us to remember because on that day when Jesus comes back and when he does divide, you'll have seen it. People sort of said, homes will be divided as things stand. My home will. Families will be divided as things stand. Streets, villages will be divided because people will be separated into those who are for Christ and those who are against Christ. And so as in a minute we go back to our tables and as we think about the guarantee, the wonder of that world that God places before those who trust in Christ and then the flip side of that reality, the grim reality of hell, we're dealing with realities and we're dealing with eternal realities. There will be a great division on that final day and it matters, it matters what we do with Christ and it matters what our friends and our families do with the Lord Jesus as well. So let's return to our seats and we're going to pick up and think about that first eternal reality, the, the guarantee of the new creation. But maybe keep that little, that little image in your mind as we think about these things. There's lots of places that we could turn to, but as you, as you find your seats again, do open up your Bibles at Revelation chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 2. Five. There are lots of places the Bible talks about the new creation and, and the world to come that God holds before the people of this world. don't know if anyone else wants to read those few verses to us. Got their roving mic here if someone's happy to read. Thanks, Nath. Revelation 21, verse 1 through to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. You see, sometimes you don't need to spend too long looking at individual words and their particular nuance in the Greek. You just need to enjoy what they say. (laughs) You read these words and you just need to let your mind and your heart be captivated by this picture that John holds before the watching world. So why don't you for just a minute on your own do that? You've got a hand out there. Maybe, maybe you've been scribbling notes already. Maybe you haven't. But as you, as you pour over those words, just five verses, what a, what a wonderful picture of the new creation. Maybe just jot down a couple of things in those verses that make you smile the most. A little smiley face on your page and jot it down. What is it that captures your heart as we think about the world to come? One minute on your own. Hopefully you've all been able to capture at least one thing in those verses, either in your head or you scribble it down on the paper. And as you, as you think about it, 
as you think about the world to come. This is what will be. This is what will be. And as you think about that world that God has placed before us, what is it that makes you smile? It'd be lovely to hear, Nate's got the mic, it'd be lovely just to hear a few reflections from you. What is it that made you smile most? Um, that God's dwelling place will be here amongst us. He won't, he'll no longer be separate from us, but he'll be right here with us. Mm. Picture that relationship back together. God intimately and perfectly with his people, which is the center of heaven. It's a place where God is above all other things. That should make you smile. Nigel. Oh, David. For these words are trustworthy and true. Yeah. We live in a world in which there's so many lies and falsehoods. Every word of scripture, God breathe. This is trustworthy and true. This will happen. That's why it's a guarantee. For those who put their faith in Jesus, this, this will be. Glorious. It's everlasting. They use the words no more for all the bad stuff. Yeah. No more. And we can all think of those things that cause so much pain and hurt. No more. No more. Everything new. Yeah. It's lovely, isn't it? Everything new. Old order. Gone. New. God makes new. The old order of things has passed away. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? And Isaiah says, uses that language of the old order being rolled up like a scroll. And it unfurl a whole new order in its place. It's good. And we, we could carry on, couldn't we? I, I hope we could be here for hours as we pour over these words. It's just five, five verses. And if we waded through the rest of chapter 21 and 22, we could be here for days as we, as we ponder this reality but let me summarize and no doubt this is these are some of the things that we've mentioned already but summarize uh, with two c's that you'll see there on the screen that are in your little booklets as well no more chaos and no more crying have a look down at verse one interesting verse then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea the sea in jewish thought was a place of chaos it's a place where the beast and the false prophet arise from earlier in the book of Revelation. It's a place of separation. It's a place of death. It's a place of judgment. But what do we read in verse 1? No longer any sea. Doesn't mean there won't be a glorious physical ocean in God's new world. This is pictorial language. What it means is there'll be no more chaos all the stuff like you see up there on the screen and you see on your TV sets and, and the brokenness and the disorder that came with sin in Genesis chapter 3. All the pain and the brokenness. We live in such a chaotic and disordered world. That's the sea that's pictured for us in Revelation. God says no more. There will be no more chaos. All that was disordered because of sin will be made new, perfectly reordered. In God's new world. No more chaos. And because there's no more chaos, of course, there's no more crying. Verse 4. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. It's a picture of a, of a father picking up a child in his arms and, and wiping a tear from his eye. It's what God's going to do with his children. Wipe every tear from our eye. Every memory of pain vanquished by the work of Jesus. All the, all the rubbish. All the stuff that just hurts, that grieves, that frustrates, that causes despair and pain will be no more. Can you imagine that world? We're so attuned to a broken world of chaos. Can our minds even comprehend a world without those things? No more doctors, no more lawyers, no more police, no more undertakers. No, they won't be there. John Lilly, lawyers will be there, but they won't be practicing, right? No disputes. Not even the smallest, tiniest dispute between two people to be resolved. No disputes. No doctors practicing. No NHS. No need for medical intervention because sickness has been vanquished. No police needed. No need to lock the doors at night. No need to worry about the children coming back on the bus. There's nothing that can hurt them. No crime. And no undertaker needed. Because there is no death in that world. The old order of things pass away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Deep down... It's a world we all want. And when I say all, I mean all. Not just believers. When you place the picture of the new creation before all people, that is a world that everybody wants deep down. Who would not want that world? Everyone wants that world. And we have the privilege of holding out Christ as our saviour to this world that they might join us there. That it wouldn't just be a guarantee for us, but that it would be a guarantee for them as well. And so we're going to sing again as we respond, as we think about that day. Remember Spurgeon, this day, today, what are you doing with Jesus today? And that day, when with the ransomed we stand in glory, his face I at last shall see. It will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. So let's stand together and sing. Thought about the, our supreme incentive, the glory of Jesus. We thought about the guarantee of the new creation. And lastly, we turn our attention to the grim reality of hell. I don't know whether you know this, but there's actually a village on the Cayman Islands, which is called Hell. And it does quite a roaring trade with the tourist industry. They produce mugs and t-shirts and things that say stuff like, I've been to hell and back and survived. But of course, it's no joking matter, is it? The world turns this reality that we're thinking about into a laughing matter. There is no return from the biblical reality of hell. Hell is a real place where real people go. And the loving Lord Jesus speaks of this reality more than any other. So if you would just turn to Luke chapter 16. And for the last time, if someone would like to, to read just this short parable to us from verse 19 through to verse 26, the parable of 
the rich man and Lazarus. Someone happy to read that? Cheers, E4. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. I was going to separate into groups to do this just for the sake of time. Though, as you as you look at that parable, as you think about what Jesus is teaching here about that eternal reality, what what are some of the words that your eyes rest on? What are some of the things that Jesus wants people to understand? Hmm? Chasm, yeah, an unbridgeable gap. A chasm has been fixed, yeah. A fixed and final reality. There is no return. After the day of judgment, when there has been that separation, there is no return. There is no changing. A chasm has been fixed between these two realities. What else do we read? What's the other language in there in which your eyes rest? Anguish. Agony. Yeah. Yeah, I beg you, crying out for relief. But does any relief come? No. Agony, torment, anguish, a fixed chasm, an unbridgeable gap. See on the screen there, I've summarized. I mean, there's, there's so much you could say. But I've summarized it with two things there. Place of suffering under God's wrath. It's why in the Bible fire is often used as a picture because it's a place where God's holiness burns against sin. Fire in the Bible is a picture of God's holiness and it's burning against sin. But it's also a place of separation from the goodness of God and that's why probably the other big picture of hell in the Bible is darkness because it's a place where we're separate from light. Light represents God and his truth and his goodness and his glory. It's who God is, but there's, there's no light there. It is a separation from the goodness of God. And as we read in Mark chapter 9, therefore it is a place to be avoided at all costs. And so the question for us is, is quite a simple one, isn't it? Do we, do we live like that's real? We think about the eternal realities. Will my Monday be different because of heaven and hell? Will my every day be shaped 
by the reality that Jesus is coming back. And there's two groups and there's two realities. Like we said at the beginning when we looked at John 3.16, these things are in our head, right? I don't think I'm saying anything new this evening. These things are in our head, but are they in our hearts? Are they moving within us? Are they compelling us to be a people who will stand up and speak for Jesus in this world? Because again, we've got the great privilege of holding out Christ who came as saviour to bear hell that we need not. You see, God's an incredibly patient God. You see there the picture of the dam on the screen. God in his utter kindness is holding back the day of judgment like flood waters behind a mighty dam. He's holding it back. He's giving people an opportunity to repent. He's calling out through his people to this world to come back to Christ because the day will come, God's appointed day, when the flood waters of God's judgment will wash across this land and not one person without Christ will stand. Yet all those who are trusted with Jesus will stand with him. So as you think about that day and maybe you've got the image of the separation in your mind, as you think about some of the, the truths in Revelation 21, as you think about some of those words in Luke chapter 16, as we ponder these realities, we're going to come to the Lord's table in a minute. But think about that picture. Because when we come to the Lord's table, when we break bread, eat bread and drink wine, we remember the death of Jesus Christ. And that death that we remember on the cross is the difference between those two realities. How we respond, how the people of this world respond to Christ is the difference between those two realities. So just take a moment again. Picture on screen. Luke 16 in hand. Table laid before us as we think about these things before we transition to the Lord's table.